welcome to another Corin stream. I am your host for the next two-ish hours, Joe Magician. And uh, today we'll be talking about a character very closely, one of my favorite characters, my favorite non-POV character, and that is, of course, Maester Eamon. This will be a sad one. This is, this is not a, uh, a happy topic as it goes, but um, that's how it goes. Um, a lot of these times, a lot of times I do these streams as sort of a curiosity about some topic in a song of ice and fire or something on the tip of the fandom, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, things that are just fun and interesting to talk about and break down, but not today. Eamon is a character with a story that means quite a lot to me personally. Um, there's a lot of overlap. I see quite a lot of myself in him. And not only that, but he has a fascinating story of his life that is not obvious, but once you start piecing it together, it becomes truly heartbreaking and reveals quite a lot about how this old man lost on the wall literally changed the course of world history and informed so much of the plot that um, that is missed by, by quite a lot of people. And it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, you're trying to like piece together like what was Rhaegar doing? What did he believe? How did that affect like his family? How did that affect the fall, the fall house Targaryen? Like how does prophecy work? And it's like it's all wrapped up all of that is wrapped up in a neat bundle that is uh aemon targaryen which i think is actually like a very a very interesting choice from george because a lot of times when you follow the hero's journey aemon follows the role of the elderly mentor that dies pretty or leaves the hero after uh, giving them kind of a, a tutorial and they have to go in on their own but aemon is more than just you know the gandalf that dies and then that's it. He's he's integral to so, so many things. Inter you named your dog Eamon? That's a good choice. An excellent choice. I hope he's a good boy and he has a nice... I hope you gave him a, a very nice collar. Hopefully with Valyrian Steel on it. Um, I'll do the, the promo stuff a little bit later. I thought we'd just go here to the opening quote. Um, I think this is... Eamon has a lot of very famous quotes within the books. He has a lot of wise words. A lot of things that really pull at your heartstrings, but probably more than anything else is not something that he said, but it was something said about him. And that is, of course, his eulogy that was said by Samuel Tarly on the um, on the cinnamon wind after they left Bravos. <clears throat> there's a there's a cut down version of this in the show, but the full one is so much better and so much more heartfelt, I would say it goes. He was a good man. No, he was a great man, a maester of the Citadel, chained and sworn and a sworn brother of the Night's Watch, ever faithful. When he was born, they named him for a hero who had died too young. But though he lived a long time, his own life was no less heroic. No man was wiser or gentler or kindler. At the wall, a dozen Lord Commanders came and went during his years of service, but he was always there to counsel them. He counseled kings as well. He could have been a king himself. When they offered him the crown, he told them they should give it to his younger brother. How many men would do that? He was the blood of the dragon, but now his fire has gone out. He was Aemon Targaryen, and now his watch is ended. Not going to cry. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Nope, 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 nope. Uh, oh, that one hurts. That one hurts. That was a, that was an, that was a strong one to lead off with. Um, well, I, I think the best way to talk about Aemon is that we should work chronologically through his life because so many of the things he says throughout the Game of Thrones and, um, and uh, the <clears throat> Storm of Swords, Clash of Kings, and A Feast for Crows where he dies is really informed by looking at his past and seeing how what he's talking about is not abstract. He's not talking about love and duty and all these other things in just like 
in a way that it's not philosophy for Amon. The reason he's saying these things, the opinions he holds, the lessons he gives John and Sam and all the men of the Night's Watch are informed by where he came from and how his role in his past um, and how his role in the in the history of Westeros really, uh, really broke the man, unfortunately. So also, uh, I think we'll just do Mar- Morley's uh, super chat here. She says she gave ninety nine dollars. I mean, one hundred dollars, actually. Thank you so much, Mora. Um, she also said in the chat, um, I, I I read it, but I didn't. So I think I was playing my thing. This is an honor of Maester Eamon and Joe Magician, who always has fabulous content on its channel. Thank you so much, Mora. Uh, she would like to know how much Blood Raven told Maester Eamon not only about John or Danny, perhaps, but um, did Blood Raven know anything about uh, Fagot or Young Griff? I'm curious what insights and information is able to pass to the Maester before the Maester's untimely death. Um, this is a this is definitely a thing I have later in the in the document, but I think it's pretty clear that throughout Eamon's life as a young man and moving on towards becoming a maester and his role in King's Landing and almost becoming king that him and Bloodraven were probably surprisingly close in a way that I don't think a lot of readers really put together, especially because of their shared interests there. Uh, they have sort of similar personalities. They have uh, a similar feelings of duty towards the realm. They express it in different ways, but it kind of feels like they have the same kind of goals they're chasing after. And especially their their love of them, the world of magic, prophecy, arcane, all these other kind of things kind of matches up. So when you're looking around the Targaryen family when Aemon was a child before he left to the Citadel, Bloodraven is one of those characters that stands out as somebody that was Aemon probably found himself naturally drawn to. Or if you want to look at it the other way, Bloodraven could have seen a lot of potential in Aemon. And it may have been him that uh, really pushed hard to make Aemon king of Westeros over Egg. Um, in terms of what he told Maester Aemon about characters like uh, the future of John and Danny and Young Griffin, these kind of things, uh, Bloodraven disappeared quite a long time ago before any of those characters were born. So if he told Aemon anything about them, it would have been in terms of like prophecy or visions. Um, maybe he had some way when he became the last green seer of contacting Aemon in his dreams, like we know that he does with Bran. And perhaps John through the Raven, but um, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of communication after Blood Raven disappeared, and it may have been on purpose from Aemon that he um that he felt it almost feels like Blood Raven continued down the path that they were on in terms of fighting the others and the coming the Long Night and searching for the prophesized hero. And Aemon just sort of he gave up the quest because the cost had gotten too high for him. But yeah, I'm definitely going to talk about that more. Thank you so much, uh, Mora. But he definitely probably told Aemon a lot of things in his youth and may have been the character that, along with um, his uncle Ares, really lit a fire of uh, in Aemon's imagination and trying to <clears throat> trying to move forward in the world in terms of uh, prophecy and all that kind of stuff. Hey, Gazal Rastigar, finally got a Joe Magician live stream. Hey, glad you got to see one. Um, I agree, Fire Art. Such an amazing character with some amazing quotes. He really is just like a quotomatic. It's like George took every good piece of advice he's ever learned through his life and put them in Eamon's mouth, which kind of makes a lot of sense. Where if you look at um, this is kind of a metatextual thing, but George has often said that um Samuel Tarley is the character that is most like a young George R. R. Martin, that they are basically one and the same. And when you read about his life and you read about his biography and stuff like that, it's it's obvious he is Sam, but you can imagine that Eamon is probably how George 
sees himself currently or as he has gotten older um because the two of them sam and Eamon, are so very similar in um actually we're going to go through it but in terms of upbringing and their attitudes towards the world the interests um all these other kind of things so you could probably see <laughs> it makes the scenes a lot more fun because you can just see it as old george talking to young george that kind of thing uh so let's go let's go back to Eamon's young life uh, he was born the third son to Prince Makar Targaryen and his wife, Diana Dane, behind his older brothers, uh, Daron and Arian. Hey, what do you know? Aemon is, in fact, a Dane. He's half Dane. If you guys are looking for the impact of that weird mystical family out there, Aemon and Egg were are, in fact, half Dane. So maybe the falling star is acting through them. If you're if you're the kind of person that's looking for that kind of thing, no better person than Aemon. <clears throat> uh when he was born, Aemon was also extraordinarily far. Like he could not be further away from the Iron Throne. Um, the only person that was less close to the Iron Throne than himself is his younger brother Egg, who later be known became known as Aegon the Fifth, the Unlikely. And Egg is just like one step down. There was no chance in his life that Aemon or Egg or Egg was really ever going to become uh, the King of Westeros without like enormous amounts of death and loss in the Targaryen family. Whoops. Bummer about that one, but that is how uh, George tends to roll. Um, and when he was born, the king at the time was still uh, Daron II, otherwise known as Daron the Good, the natural, the, the trueborn son of Aegon IV, although that was often disputed um, by Aegon IV himself. He believed that Daron was not, a, was not his own son, um, and that was part of the reason that he essentially legitimized all of his bastards, leading to the Blackfire rebellions. And Aemon was born only two years after the rise and fall of Damon Blackfire's rebellion. So that's, that's, that's an amazing time to be born into. It's right after the destruction of the realm. Every, like the, all of Westeros is a smoking heap. Tons of people are dead. Uh, tensions are running high. Daron's trying to stitch back together this realm and then Aemon's born um when you look even across the narrow sea Bittersteel had taken Blackfire and all of Daemon's remaining children and fled to Essos um eventually forming the Golden Company so even from a very young age Aemon there was no there's no like Aemon growing up in the time of Jaehaerys when things were like pretty happy things are pretty chill things are going okay no he grew up and lived through extreme tension and stress for the royal family um that's that's really all he ever knew i guess for him like <laughs> times of peace would be would feel strange without the looming threat of a rebellion now you can imagine how that uh affected him and his brothers to a to a very to a massive degree and also the feeling of expectation on them that one day the the job of fighting back bitter steel and the black fires would probably fall to them. It's um, that's a, that's a tough thing to grow up with. That's a lot of expectations. That's a lot of, um, that's a lot of pressure for anybody, even someone as far from the throne as Aemon, because if the black fires come back, it's not like him and his brothers and Makar are going to be able to dodge the rebellion. They're going to have to fight. They're going to have to be involved with the war. So this looming sword hanging over them his entire life. Um, uh, Isabella Mago says who Aegon thought was Daron's dad. Uh, he thought that Daron's dad was Aemon the Dragon Knight, which is also kind of funny. Uh, we'll get to that. Aemon is also named for, as, a, as the aforementioned, Aemon uh, the Dragon Knight. 
which is kind of funny. We considering where his life goes, Sam kind of addresses that in his eulogy where he's like, well, he was really nothing like Aemon the dragon knight, like not even a little bit. Um, and that's, that's kind of the story of his life where he really did forge his own path and expectate and went against expectations to kind of, um, to make his own path. One thing that we hear about the childhood of growing up in Makar's family is that, um, Arian Brightflame was, or Arian the monster, as he's later known, uh, was extremely, extremely abusive to his younger siblings. We hear, this is the the story we get from Egg, which reminds us very much of Euron. He says the same, th- similar things to Aaron Greyjoy um, about, their, about their experiences as a child, where, uh, here's the quote, in Arian, I remember when I was little, he used to come into my bedchamber at night and put a knife between my legs. He had too many brothers, he'd say. Maybe one night he'd make me his sister and then he could marry me. He threw my cat in the well, too. He says he didn't, but he always lies. So that's what Egg says about Aaron. You have to imagine the same thing happened to Eamon or similar kinds of bullying, um, abuse, physical abuse, all these other kind of things. And there's a little bit of proof of this in that um, Eamon does not remember Aaron well. On his deathbed, he goes through a list of all his siblings. He says, um... He hopes he'll see Daron whole and happy. He says he hopes he'll see Egg again. And then he says um, he wants to see his sisters again and hear them singing to their children. No mention of Arian Brightflame, completely off the table. So I think that's a little hint by George that, yes, Eamon experienced abuse at a very young age from Arian Brightflame. Um, oh, uh, a super chat here from Catherine Firsith, um, 109 NOK. Uh, for Matt, thanks for giving all of us a much needed reprieve and fun escape in these tough times. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on Eamon and John. Uh, thank you, Catherine. Very generous of you. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about fun escape today. This is going to be a, this is going to be a very sad one, um, but I appreciate it. Thank you for the super chat. So I, I think that's one thing that can really inform a lot about Eamon in the same way it did that egg that not only was he born under stress, he was born under Somebody like Arian, who probably tried to make his life a living hell, especially when you look at the difference between their characters, where Arian is more a um, he's more like a schoolyard bully and he prides himself on, you know, swinging his sword around and hitting and abusing people like mental warfare, that kind of thing. And then you have Eamon, who's a, a little book nerd who loves sitting in the library and just as that he's kind and he's generous and he's um, he's gentle and all these things like he's unfortunately like the perfect target for someone like Arian. And going into kind of these young signs, uh, we hear from also from a very young age, much like uh, Rhaegar and Baylor the Blessed, that Aemon was a gigantic nerd. He was a bookworm. He didn't like to spend any time practicing the sword. He didn't want to ride on horses. He didn't want to he didn't want to do any of the things that a lot of lordlings do. Instead, he spent all of his time in um, in the library. All he wanted to do was read. All he wanted to do was learn. Uh, there's a there's a funny quote about Rhaegar, and this is actually something that's repeated for uh, Baylor the Blessed, where there's this idea that when a Targaryen uh, comes out and they're very very smart and very bookish, there, there's this story that like their mother must have eaten uh, some books while they were pregnant. Well, Aemon must, uh, Deanna Dane must have eaten an entire goddamn library to give us Aemon Targaryen. Um, yeah, who throws a cat down a well? Aaron Broyfang, because he's a jerk. But yeah, for Aemon, th- this is a um, an important character point for him, which even makes adds to the tragedy of his character that we learn 
later in life that became blind. I I almost wonder if this was George. There's a famous um famous Twilight Zone episode, I believe, where there's a guy at the end of the world and everybody's gone. And he's the only one left. And he's like, finally, I can read all my books. I'm finally alone. And then Eamon, kind of the same thing happens to him. He's at the wall. He has this amazing library at Castle Black nearby at Winterfell, maybe the Manderleys as well. And then his eyes are taken from him. It's it's one of the crueler things you could do to him. It's it's akin to Jamie losing his sword hand. Um, or if uh, there are some people that think that Tyrion Lannister later in the story will have his tongue cut out. It, it's this was his life. This was his passion. And George took it from him. Yikes. Uh, we get a quote here from uh, Lord Commander Mormont about Aemon's choices in life and why he ended up where he did. Uh, the quote goes, so he was Semsei Prince Aemon was King Daron's true father, not Aegon the Unworthy. Be that as it may, our Aemon lacked the Dragon Knight's martial nature. He likes to say he had a slow sword, but quick wits. Small, small wonder his grandfather packed him off to the Citadel. He was nine or ten, I believe, and ninth or tenth in line of succession as well. Um, so yeah, that's basically the same That's the same thing we're talking about here, where Aemon has no interest in the martial life. He has no interest in being a prototypical lordling no interest in being like a Robert Baratheon kind of figure. He wants to he wants to use his mind as a weapon, which is actually a quote that he uses later. That's one of those things that gets attributed to Tyrion a lot. But Eamon has a very similar quote to John later that I don't think he got from Tyrion. That's, it was probably his own thing. Um, and what Eamon lacks in Marshall's skill and interest in these kind of things, he more than made up for in his intelligence. Uh, political savvy like we see when he's essentially running the night's watch as a maester despite not being lord commander and also a human lie detector this is something that's played up in the show there's the famous scene where um where aemon sees through janos slint and believes john and they uh, and they confront him it's like how do you know when someone's always lying and aemon goes well i grew up in king's landing true you grew up among liars that's that's very true it's also something that's in the books nobody gets anything past maester aemon he knows instantly what everyone's going to do he's a mile smarter than anyone around him um oh super chat here from your last great night ten dollars thank you very much very generous uh it seems there was an aemon who everyone wanted to be king but there was an aegon on the throne instead do you think that may be foreshadowing for john's true name uh yeah aemon often gets caught up in um in discussions of what john snow's true name true name is which what name liana stark gave him because rhaegar did not name john um, he was long dead by the time John was born. He may have left a preference, but it was Liana who gave the name. Um, there's been some suggestion that it may have been Aemon due to Rhaegar's uh, affection for his great, great, great uncle. I think that's a relationship between them. Um, but there's also speculation that since Rhaegar obviously very much thought that <clears throat> his son would become king, that maybe he named his second son Aegon. Uh yeah, it's 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 confusing and it's kind of contradictory in ways like if he's named Aemon, does that mean he won't become king? But if he's named Aegon, he will become king. Well, we know by the end of A Song of Ice and Fire that Bran will become king. So no matter what, it seems like he will be um, he'll be giving them up um, or he will not become king, whether by not pushing it or giving it up for Bran. I'm guessing it will be the I'm guessing that he will never even try to become king. Um, there's a good thematic sense for both of them. I tend to believe the Aegon one, but I don't blame Aemon is my personal favorite. That's the one I would want, but I don't think that's the way it's going to go. There's also some other hints that like of it during playtime with Rob that John would claim to be Aemon the Dragon Knight. That one kind of stands out. 
but he also claims to be the young dragon. He claims to be a whole bunch of other characters. So it's kind of like uh, it's picking which ones you would like to be true. I would I tend towards uh, John being named Aegon, but, you know, I can definitely see the other way. The only difference is that Lyanna has no connection to Aegon or Aemon as names. So it's unlikely she ever met Maester Aemon. It's unlikely she ever knew, met anyone named Aegon as well. So what did she name him? Who knows? We'll find out eventually, uh, probably through Brand's visions. <clears throat> uh, and this goes back to uh, Maura Lee's super chat earlier, talking about the relationship between Aemon and Bloodraven. When you look at who was in the Red Keep and who was in the Targaryen family at the time when Aemon, before Aemon left for the Citadel, uh, there's a few characters that stick out that Aemon probably gravitated to the most. Uh, obviously, Bloodraven is one. As I was talking about earlier, they have a large overlap in interests, a large overlap in personality and their focus in their lives. But another uh, another character would obviously be his uncle Ares, Ares, who later became Ares I. We learn that through Ares I's life that he essentially abdicated being king, more or less, while still being king in order to study scrolls and prophecy, the prince that was promised, the dragons returning. That's what he spent all of his reign doing while he left Bloodraven to rule everything. Um, you can imagine that made for him not being a super great king, but probably an awesome resource for Aemon as a child, somebody that would have he would have found a lot of um, a lot of connections with personally. And the other one likely would have been uh, Shira Seastar. She is often called like a witch character or that she knew magic, but her and Bloodler even seem to be like a magical power couple. So I would have no problems believing that uh, if you're talking about which people in the which adults in the Red Creep and the Red Keep and the Targaryen family that Aemon was closest to, those would be my top three: uh, Blood Raven, Ares the First, and Shira Seastar. Uh, super chat here from uh, Zach Berger, ten dollars or Berger. Uh, thank you very much, Zach. This is big off big off topic. Sorry, uh, Archmaester Gildane describes Jaehaerys and Alysanne's time on Dragonstone as an Eden. Does this mean that Judeo-Christian religions exist in the world of Ice and Fire? Um, no, I think that's George just um just talking in the language that we would understand. I mean, obviously, the people in Westeros speak in a language that um common tongue is not English. I don't even know what it is, but we would probably be unable to talk to them if we were there. So I think that's just a um just a a localization for the audience to understand what the hell they're talking about. I wouldn't go, I wouldn't go too far in those sort of things. Um, it would be interesting though what the if there is an idea of a blessed place essentially within Westeros for people of the faith of the seven. Do they think about um, Andalus that way? Uh, we don't really know much about their creation myths. That's actually something I heard somebody talking about recently, where they're saying like basically. George's lack of focus on religion in any real way means that the like the creation myths and what's actually in the seven pointed star, all these other kind of things are like totally absent. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that's just what it is. It's just um, he needed a word that made sense. And that's the one he picked. But thank you for the super chat. Uh, good thought, though. That is something other people not myself are super interested in the the missing religion of a song of ice and fire i'm not very religious myself so that's not something i would have ever thought about but appreciate it uh oh super chat here um 2000 huff from uh spinnaker wait i think i know where huff is from is that from uh this is gonna be the weirdest thing ever uh that means you are from uh where's budapest hungary 
Yes. I know that from Travel Man, the show with Richard Iatwadi. Uh Ashling B spent so much talking about Huff because she thought the name was ridiculous that it stuck with my head. Uh thank you for that. Thank you for the 2000 Huff. Uh, you have the best understanding of characters psychology and have great insights and in knowing that this is personally i'm sure this will give you more complex and vibrant view of him for me hey thank you i really appreciate those compliments um yeah i i, I do think quite a lot about Eamon's psychology and linking his past to the things he says and and trying to understand his psychology and what knowledge he's trying to impart and how george uses him i think it's um i think it's a fascinating underdeveloped subject but uh you know hopefully gonna ignite a few more to go out there and uh and trying to understand his character because I think it's it's one of those missing pieces for a lot of people that is really just staring you in the face if you just put things together just in the right order. <laughs> yeah, it's true, uh, Aaron. I love how many different currencies you learn from Matt's super chats. Yeah, lots of different super chats. I don't know what an NOK is from uh, Catherine, but there it is. You can tell the relative value. I think I talked about this last time. Uh, orange is around ten to twenty dollars. I think our yellow is. Um, <laughs> Travel Man's a great show, though. You should definitely go watch it with uh, Richard Iowati. He's going to be leaving the show. A bummer. Anyway, sorry. Back to the um, <laughs> back to the Eamon discussion. So, yeah, um, we would see Eamon's behavior with especially with the Night's Watch um, election that gets Jon Snow elected and the way he's pulling strings and the way he's pushing Sam in order to get him to get Jon to be Lord Commander. Uh, you can see a very much a Blood Raven like attitude toward this where i don't think anybody in the outside of the election would know that it's Eamon that really had the biggest hand in making sure john got elected but that's what he wanted and that's what ended up happening um he more or less runs like the hr i guess for the night's watch he takes care of the the emotional needs and the soul of the different night's watch brothers whereas mormon is more the the commander that kind of thing and also uh, to emphasize the point that Ammon probably did have a relationship um, with Bloodraven and Shear Seastar and probably Ares as well, is that when Egg talks with Bloodraven in the Mystery Knight, I think that's the right one. Let's see here. Hedge Knight. Yeah, the Mystery Knight. There's a lot of there's a lot of familiarity between them. It's not like he it's not like Bloodraven is somebody from afar that Egg doesn't know. The two of them clearly know each other and talk as family, not as um not as distant relatives. So you can assume the same for Eamon, that he knew Bloodraven personally before he left for the Citadel, which says all kinds of interesting things about what he went to the Citadel to learn. Um, so as the quote said, at around nine years old, he gets sent to the Citadel, become a maester by Daron II. The reasoning we're told is that Daron thought it was a bad idea to have too many idle Targaryens sitting around in one place. Um, and that Eamon clearly showed an aptitude for knowledge and learning and wanted no part of like uh, ruling or being a lordling or anything like that. He had the mind of a maester. So they say, all right, well, we'll send Eamon to be become a maester. Um, this is kind of one of those things that um, I always enjoy thinking about with the Blackfire Rebellions and the rise of Damon. And one of the reasons that Damon rose to rebel, and it's kind of a kind of a sneaky one, is that he didn't have anything to do. Um Damon had no job. He had no role in the kingdom, really. Um, he wasn't on any councils or anything like that. He was essentially just provided for and allowed to stay at court where he just kind of got to know everybody and he was popular and everyone high-fived him. And it's largely through those influences that the plots and grievances of the Blackfire Rebellion gained their, gained their, their seed, basically. 
they got hold in Damon because he was always around and didn't have a lot to do. Um, you can see with Eamon that Daron essentially said like, okay, no more of that. We're going to make sure these kids have things to do. Send off Eamon to become a maester so that he has something that's not just courtly life. Um, although interestingly, this did not really happen for his other brothers. Um, Egg was allowed to essentially go on his journey with Duncan the Tall, but Daron had really had no part in that. Um, we don't say anything similar for Arian, but Daron, yeah, at a... It's kind of curious that if that's really Daron's logic for why he sent a, I mean, Eamon to be a, a maester, then why was nothing done with the rest of them as far as we know? Um, oh, yes. Please remember to slam the like button, y'all. Thank you, Aaron. Um, I, this leads me to believe that maybe part of it was actually the abuse that Arian Brightflame was inflicting on his siblings. We know he was doing it to Egg. He may have been doing it to his sisters, most likely Eamon as well. Perhaps Eamon reacted very, very, very poorly to um, to Arian's bullying, and it was an attempt to essentially separate him from uh, Eamon, maybe his favorite target. Kind of a, that may have been a sneaky one. There's a lot of hints throughout Eamon's story and the things he talks about and his history that there is a, a big hole of a character, an Arian bright flame that obviously that he like has blacked he has blocked out his memory entirely he wants he wants doesn't want to talk to him he doesn't want to think about him so i think it's uh it may have been pretty clear that that, that could have been part of the reason Amin was sent away oh hey amanda yes aaron was exiled um although that was later in life um arian asked flame yeah oh good call um egg said he wanted to be part of the king's guards may have been part of the future sure that could have been, he could have been uh initially groomed for that kind of role you can imagine that they just they were trying to find aptitudes and pushing the kids towards them uh this is probably a good time to do uh promo stuff we're about 45 minutes in so as per usual um hit slam that mf and like button if you could uh subscribe if it's your first time here hit that bell button for notifications uh we have 155 watching right now 97 likes get up to 150 likes i got my wizard hat sitting over here we'll throw that baby on um, 175. I'll put on my, my germ hat, which is currently sitting underneath a couple of books. And if we get to 200 likes, um, I'll give away, I'll give away a shirt to somebody in chat, um, from my Threadless store. If you want to support the channel, um, obviously there've been a bunch of super chats. You can send them through that way. You can send them to my PayPal. Uh, links are in the description. Um, patreon.com slash Joe Magician. Actually, I got my timing wrong. Uh, after the stream today, for all patrons, $5 and up, uh, I'll be releasing my analysis of Sand Kings. I released it for anyone um, for the 10 for the Archmasters and up yesterday. So that will be going live after the stream today. About 45 minutes long. George R. R. Martin's best story, Sand Kings, the one he's most known for, the one that made his career before Song of Ice and Fire. Um, really fascinating. It's a horror sci-fi story. I had a lot of fun with it. I, Gaming nightmares, honestly, uh, <laughs> rereading it and analyzing it. It's it's a very effective horror story. Has a lot of connections to a song of ice and fire too. So, you guys like thinking about the children of the forest and the weirwoods and how they connect and like the psychology of where the others came from. That kind of stuff. Sand Kings is a really great resource, and I kind of highlight that in an episode. So, Patreon.com/slash Joe Magician, five dollars and up will get you access to that after the stream today. Um, upcoming videos. I've got my, um, lady Stoneheart and the winds of winter video coming up next. I, and then after that have a, 
an analysis of Stannis, as I made a promise to my patrons, God help me, that I would make a video about Stannis where I don't, I just don't insult him. So that'll be coming after that. And then um, I believe third in the queue is talking about linking explicitly Dunk to Brienne. Uh, Ramona Samfier, who a uh, patron of mine and in the chat has been, had a really uh, good idea and going to make that into a video. I may have cracked it how exactly you get from um, Luca Moore the Lusty to Dunk to Bran. All right, so 113 likes. Yes, slam that and like button. Thank you. Thank you, guys, everybody that's doing that. And also for all the super chats and the patrons and all these things. Um, yes, that's right, Adrian. Uh, Sand Kings, the Outer Limits episode about aliens taken from Mars that is based on George R. R. Martin's story, Sand Kings. Uh, the Outer Limits episode's very different, though. Uh, they had to change quite a lot of things, but his frequent collaborator, Melinda Snodgrass, is the one that adapted it. So there's a lot of value in reading Sand Kings itself, and it's not that long. It's only like uh, 14, 15 pages. Dense, but very, very effective. <clears throat> We're not hitting for Arian as Quaith, are we? Arian is not Quaith. Arian is next level dead. Drank some wildfire and burned out from the inside. Um, oh, and also, if you're listening back on the podcast feed, the, the podcast is, I take these afterwards and I rip the audio. And put them up on the Wit and Wisdom of Joe Magician. You can find that at basically any podcast um, app and service you can think of. I think I have them on all of them. Or you can request it if it's not. Um, leave a review or all those other kind of things. If you Actually, let me see if there are new ones while we're here uh, on Apple Podcasts. I think there was a recent one. Um, on 214 from uh, Sweet Melissa. Enjoyable podcast on A Song of Ice and Fire. Very fun discussions. And often has great creators join him. Um, five stars. Hey, thank you, uh, sweet Melissa. An excellent, excellent review. Uh, all these things help with um, making sure people can find it because the algorithms are based on not only listening to things, but also providing feedback, that kind of things. You know, do all the things. I appreciate it. Uh, so let me check this real fast. Sure, I'm not missing anything. Okay. Oh, no, Renly's Peach. You hurt yourself gardening? I know that feeling. Uh, so let's see here. Where did we leave off? We left off with Eamon going to the Citadel. Um, one thing that we learn about Eamon from his very young life is that he was extremely close with his siblings and especially egg, uh, who was his baby brother when Eamon is losing his mind and he's circling the drain essentially on the Simon wind. He talks about egg quite a lot. We get the famous quote that, um, egg, I dreamed I was old, heartbreaking, heartbreaking line, especially for any of you, any of you that have, uh, grandparents or parents that have gone through dementia. And the um and senility, it's the heartbreaking thing. The idea that he just kind of lost track of where he was in his life and believed he was young again and wanted to be young again. I mean, who amongst us would not? Um, but as he got older, he also remained involved with his oldest brother, uh, Daron, and also his sisters Dale and Rhea and Ray as they grew older. We know that um he dreams as he's dying about hearing his sisters sing to their children. So obviously he was around them quite a bit to know this. He was the personal maester for Daron for quite some time. Um, it's kind of unclear what kind of relationship he had with his mother, Deanna Dane. She's not, she's basically not a character. Um, we know almost nothing about her. She just kind of exists as Makar's wife and that's about it. Uh, but his relationship with Makar seems to be quite adversarial that um, it's, he probably did not, see eye to eye with his father on almost anything um quite a lot throughout his life he refused what makar asked or commanded him to do um it's not really that surprising when you look at makar as a character it seems like they are total polar opposites uh, makar is a warrior 
he's a military man. He's he's extremely large. He's powerful. Um, he likes swinging his mace around, whereas it seems like Eamon doesn't even know how to swing a sword. Um, it seems like the relationship between them were probably was quite distant and they didn't have a lot of overlap. Kind of the opposite of probably how he felt about Ares and Bloodraven and Shira Seastar. Um, there's also there may have been kind of a it's um, putting dislike on Ammon for Makar that he probably didn't deserve because Makar um, had a problem with Bloodraven for quite a large part of his life, mostly because Bloodraven was named Hand of the King for Ares over himself, something he took very personally. We hear that he sulked and went to Summer Hall afterwards and refused to be at court. Um, it created a rivalry between the two of them, which eventually went away. Makar did name Bloodraven and of the king when he became king himself, but that was much later. Um, the dislike that Makar had for Bloodraven and probably likely Ares the first as well may have been put onto his son, which is unfair to Aemon, but unfortunately kind of understandable. Um, I was talking about earlier the, the similarities between Samwell and Aemon. You can imagine that the relationship between Samwell and his father um randall the vandal tarley may have been similar in in con in um in context but not like actions i don't think anybody there's no stories of Amen being like prayed over by like warlocks from the east or anything crazy like that or makar saying like um we're gonna pretend you died run to the night's watcher i'll kill you that kind of thing but the the difference between having kind of a rough and tumble father and a son who's a giant giant nerd uh, which is also something George experienced. Uh, he was a giant nerd from a young age, and his father was a longshoreman in New Jersey. So you, when he when he writes in dream songs about his parents, uh, there's a lot more overlap between himself and his mother than him with his father, um, which uh, gets also passed on to Samwell. Samwell's relationship to his sisters and his mother are much stronger than the ones he had with his father. So same kind of thing probably with Eamon. Mm. Uh, one of the thing we also hear about from a very young age in that egg and Eamon used to pretend that they were dragon riders and their dragon heads would hatch and they would be like dragon lords of old riding them around like Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters come again, that kind of thing. Um, uh, we also know that this is informed by Darren the Drunkard. Um, egg relates later during, I believe it's the mystery night where he says that Darren's dreams come true and that he says the dragons will return. And you have to assume as well that it's not just Egg that knew this, that Eamon knew this as well, and probably their sisters. And this may have started his relationship to Daron may have started his um his path down towards the extreme, extreme interest he has in prophecy, magic, all these other kind of things. Also Ares, but Blood Raven, but Daron as well. Uh good call, Jay Mori. Da uh Diana may have been the Joanna to make our in terms of psychology. That's probably a good call. Um I'd also look to um sam's mother and randall that may have been a similar kind of relationship uh another thing that we hear from them is that they essentially kind of played warhammer i don't know if you've ever played that it's the game with the little miniatures on a table where you move them around and you have them fight essentially egg and amy used to replay the blackfire rebellions with little painted soldiers so we're getting a picture here of Eamon being just the biggest nerd in the world he played uh tabletop games a thing that george is famous for he loves tabletop games he has a whole collection in his house if you've ever seen it and essentially that he's larping so yeah Eamon's getting a lot of um a lot of interests that overlap with the song of ice and fire fans i would say uh what would maester Eamon's dragons have been like i would like to see that uh hypothetically um a probably a very shy dragon 
not a big, powerful one. That would be my guess. Maybe something like Grey Ghost. That, that, he probably would have gotten along great with Grey Ghost, the one that almost nobody could find. Uh, let's see if any questions related to what I've talked about so far. Um, no, no, these are all coming up. Okay. So then we get um, Eamon being sent to the Citadel at nine or ten years old. We're told that he rose extremely fast through the Citadel. I mean, you, he has a natural um, extreme intelligence and in that he has um, a love of scholarly knowledge. So it's not that surprising. He's not like lazy Leo Tyrell, who's essentially like just kind of kicking back his way through the Citadel. Eamon forged his uh, his chain in only 10 years. At 19 years old, he becomes a full maester, very young for a maester. Um, we see that when we look into the Citadel in the Old Town, that there are quite a lot of people and novices throughout the Citadel that struggle to forge any chains, or they only get a few and then end up quitting, and they remain novices, or they just do clerical stuff around the Citadel all their life. Eamon is not one of those characters. He very, very quickly uh, forged his chain. Oh, I should have gotten my chain. Oh, I, f I don't know where it is. I should have gotten my maester's chain for that costume I made. Ah, totally forgot it. I need to get a maester's chain at some point. Um, that'd be fun to be to get made, although they're very tight. Like the show depicts them as like like long, loose um, necklaces, essentially. But they're supposed to be very tightly wrapped around your neck. Uh, we also know that during this time that Aegon that Aemon is not left on his own and essentially divorced from his family when he becomes a maester. Uh, we see we saw that essentially happened with the other princely maester, uh, Vagon Targaryen, son of Jaehaerys, where essentially he cut himself off from the rest of the family. He went into the Citadel. Not what happened with Aemon. We hear that Egg once brought Duncan the Tall to Old Town, which is kind of a sweet thing. Like He introduced his best friend Dunk to his favorite brother and Aemon. They had a good time. They probably went to the Quillen Tankard, had some uh, quaff, some strong cider, like we saw in the uh, Feast for Crows prologue. Uh, we know that Eamon married, uh, measured Dunk's height, and also that he gave them a mule as a gift named Maester. A very sweet gift. Um, yeah, they are terribly uncomfortable. It's supposed to be the, they're supposed to be a sign of bondage. They're supposed to be like almost like a slave chain kind of thing. So, yeah. It's more, pra yeah, exactly. It's more practical in the show to have them hanging loose, but that's not how they're supposed to be worn. Uh, when we're looking at Eamon's interest in the duties he has at Castle Black and that he has, he himself has a very long chain. Um, you can assume that he probably got uh, links of his chain in almost everything. If you guys aren't aware, the different metals in the chain are for essentially for different subjects that you master. So for instance, silver is healing. Uh, you get black iron for Raven Reeve, Lyrian steel for the higher mysteries. Um, got to assume that Aemon basically just got them all. He's a one man show up at the Night's Watch. He basically does everything for them. So just an incredible wealth of knowledge. <clears throat> After this, uh, Aemon becomes a full maester and he's given his first job. Some maesters stay in the Citadel basically their whole lives. They don't go anywhere. Um, they essentially become archmaesters. They continue their scholarship there, um, become like kind of like professors that kind of thing not for Eamon he gets sent out to become a castle maester like he does later in life um like most of the maesters we meet in the story like maester crescent is a uh, a castle maester they're sworn to one family or actually sworn to one castle and whoever the lord of it is to provide advice we don't know anything about this uh which castle he got sent to which lordling this was <clears throat> there's only you can just kind of guess a few things about it like, for instance, because Eamon's a prince, you have to assume that he was probably sent off to somebody important um, and somebody that wouldn't offend the Targaryen family. So probably not a Blackfire supporter. 
uh, maybe a loyalist family, some young lordling who needed a lot of help, and they sent the genius prince to go help them, that kind of thing. <coughs> um, as the counterexample, like I was talking about, um, Dagon Targaryen, the child of Jaehaerys, never was a, ca- a castle maester as far as we know, but he essentially went to the Citadel in Old Town and stayed there the entire rest of his life, becoming an archmaester. Um, yeah, that's right. I know some people uh, merit it. I know some people who never want to leave university. They are real. Exactly. Vagon was one of those. Eamon was not. He completed his degrees, essentially, and went out into the world. Um, later in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, Eamon talks about his vows being tested, his vows to the Citadel, but also the Night's Watch. Uh, he names one of them was obviously Robert's Rebellion, that he very much wanted to go fight against Robert and help the Targaryen cause, even though Ares was an asshole and all these other kind of things. We don't really he doesn't say what the other two are, but you, a lot of people have surmised the second one is when he was offered to become king and turn it down. But the first one, and this is partly influenced by the show, but the timing made sense. He says that once when I was a boy, he, that's when his first the first time his vows were tested. So either while he was at the citadels as a novice or during this time when he's a castlemaster to a random lordling, um, it would make a lot of sense if he was. If he uh, found romance, if he found love and he very much wanted to act on that, rip off his maester's chain and just be like a normal guy or a um, follow his heart. That's one of the things he really talks about with Jon Snow is is that um, he regrets not having children, that he regrets not having a son in his arms. He regrets not following his heart, whereas following his head. Um, It would make a lot of sense if it was during this time as a castle maester that he may have found the love of his life and had to leave them behind, especially because like uh, this is experience. A lot of people have when they like go to college or university and that kind of thing. This is the first time that Eamon's on his own. There's no Citadel around. There's no archmasters. There's no members of his family. He's just being himself. So uh, this would be my guess. He's not technically a boy anymore. He's 19 years old, but if it's not at Old Town, I would guess it was during this time that his vows were first tested. Hey, Jessica. Uh, oh, my gosh. I'm so happy I actually cap- catch you live. I love your channel. Thank you, Jessica. I'm glad you got to find one, too. Ever, almost every Saturday at 2 p.m., I do live streams on uh, kind of random topics. About every month and a half, I have to cancel them because I have to work. But if you want to jot it down, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Saturdays is when I stream. Uh, Ulysses Leon says, wait, wasn't the Vagon guy the one who screwed Raina over? Yes. Vagon is the asshole that suggested the Great Council. So Vagon's not a nice guy. Um, he's he's described as a as a as, as basically just a prick. Nobody likes him. He doesn't like anybody. He wants to be on his own. Um, yeah, not not a, not a super nice guy. Kind of the opposite of Eamon. Similar interests, but not a similar outlook and way of dealing with people. <clears throat> how likely or Rosinante says, how likely is it that Vagon contributed to the book, The Death of the Dragons, given how distant he was from his family? Wouldn't Maester Aemon have heard rumors of it? Um, I would guess that a lot of the knowledge the Citadel has is from Vagon, um, that he, and this was the time when the dragons were alive, so he would have been able to give them a lot more information and not seen it as a um as a betrayal because he doesn't really he doesn't he doesn't feel a strong kinship towards the Targaryens. Um, so yeah, Vagon's probably a good source for that kind of information. Um, and I'm sure Aemon throughout his life thought quite a lot about the other prince maester in vagon and compared himself to him uh, did i get a new haircut no i did not get a new haircut it's actually getting kind of long um i was thinking about getting one soon thank you for the compliment uh so then after this um Makar becomes king and he summons all of his children to come court 
to come to court to become a part of his administration. He wants to give them all jobs. Again, maybe this is a lesson learned from Damon Blackfire, that kind of thing. Um, Bloodraven remains his hand of the king, but he wanted to give Arion, he wanted to give Egg, he wanted to give um, Daron, he wanted to give Aemon jobs. And in particular, he wanted Aemon to be not Grand Maester, but he wanted him to sit on the council as an extra maester. And um, we have a quote here from... This is another one from J.R. Um, Mormont. Apparently, during their time together, Eamon told uh, J.R. quite a lot of stories about his life. Uh, the quote here goes, The Iron Throne passed to the last of King Daron's four sons. That was Makar, Eamon's father. The new king summoned all his sons to court and would have made Eamon part of his councils, but he refused, saying that would usurp the plates rightly held, rightly belonging to the Grand Maester. Instead, he served at the keep of his eldest brother, another Daron. Well, that one died too, leaving only a feeble-witted daughter as heir. Some pox he caught from a whore, I believe. The next brother is Arion. So there, that's basically the story there. Um, Makar calls on the court, says, be a part of a small council. Like, you're an amazing... He's finally learned to value Aemon, I guess. He wants to put him as one of the um, most powerful people in Westeros. And Aemon says, nope, absolutely not. Um, and I talked about this in my video, um, Aemon the Dreamer. Links are in the description. I've done two videos on Aemon. Um, so Pyre's in blood and um, and Aemon the Dreamer. But throughout his life, Aemon has consistently chose to not seek the highest power and offices available to him, especially those that he could get because of his birthright. Um, this is one of the first examples, but he could have essentially become like the like almost like an anti-pope, the anti-grand maester. Um, and he decides instead that that is not his place. That's not something he should do. Refuses Makar's command and instead goes to become personal maester to his brother, Daron. Um, we meet Daron during the hedge night. He's uh, Daron the drunkard. He's the guy passed out in the bar that sees Duncan goes, oh, I've seen you in my dreams. And he predicts the death of Baylor Breakspear. Um, Daron had quite a lot of problems in his life. Uh, he had huge amounts of problems with alcohol. Um, he essentially gave in to every impulse he ever had and it, it kind of, it really did destroy his life. And he explained it because he did all these things because his dreams at night kept coming true. Um, and it drove him crazy, Well, that that's how he talks about it basically. But Eamon decides that his place, what he should do is go be Daron's personal maester. And I think this is another thing that goes into his, um, his incredible skills, and his incredible um, amount of kindness and generosity and gentleness he has, because rather than writing Daron off, um, rather than essentially saying, well, whatever, we'll just pass him over. I'll get Makar to essentially not make him king. He goes the other way. He says, I'm going to stay. I'm going to be there for Daron, my troubled older brother, every day. I'm going to try and heal his mind. I'm going to try and make him fix him essentially um, and try and like make him into a real heir to the Iron Throne, make him a, a passable king when it eventually uh, goes to him, which a lot of people would not do. We see in great councils all the time that people like Daron are often overlooked because of their um, their flaws as being rulers. Aemon goes the other way. Uh, the other reason that I think that he went to go stay with Daron all the time, though, is that Daron's a legitimate prophet, and the Targaryen family is very much aware of this. So if you're Maester Aemon and you have a Valyrian steel link and you have this interest in the higher mysteries and magic and especially prophecies and the return of dragons and Daron's talking about all these things, 
wouldn't it behoove you to like figure out how his powers work and if there's a way they can be used if there's a way you can understand them not only would it help daron by helping him to understand that like what he has is a gift not a curse and maybe use it for the good of the realm but just in like in general this is a good thing to try and figure out oh uh 134 likes we get to 150 uh put on that wizard hat uh 170 watching at the moment thank you guys um jay moray do you think you knew darren well before the dreams absolutely um that's one of the th- that's one of the very strong things about Eamon's character is that he has extremely strong connections with his family um and that this is something on his deathbed he talks about he you know, he wants to see damon he wants to see darren whole and happy so that means that that may have been his goal when he was his personal maester he wanted to make he wanted to help Daron become whole and happy and just could not get there. Um, yeah, Daron is a tormented figure, definitely. But this is also kind of a, a great service to the realm. Daron is the heir to the Iron Throne after Makar. And if he's a wild, unpredictable drunk who's going out and having all kinds of bastards and like self-destructing on the Iron Throne, well, we've seen this before. That's Aegon IV. Um, that's the kind of thing he did. So trying to turn Daron's path away from Aegon the fourth to being maybe more like their grandfather, Daron the good is a kind of a great service to the realm. If you could pull it off. Um, Aemon is unable to, and Daron dies of pox. Um, we know that Daron had only one child, Vela Targaryen. Um, actually, Nessie had some questions about her. I'll get to that in a second, but there's one of those things in a feast for crows that comes up where when they're on the boat uh, on the cinnamon wind, I believe um, Gilly says she's very nervous about giving, um, well, not her son, Dallas son over to, to Eamon thinking that he's too weak and that he may drop her. And instead Eamon lights up completely. He bounces the kid on his knee, sings them songs. They play, they're very happy, that kind of thing. And Gilly just kind of goes like, where did that come from? Isn't he been a maester all of his life? Sam thinks the same thing. Well, Think about the fact that when he was Daron's personal maester, he probably would have known Vaela Targaryen and had a big role in raising her. Um, same sort of thing happens where he like he liked being around his sisters when they played with their children. Um, he remembers them singing and having them on their knees and that kind of things. And also, we learn that Egg's um, Egg's daughter would call him Uncle Maester, and that he has a lot of compassion for children. Seems to be very good at dealing with them um, and a very nurturing character character so that's one of those small things that i think that goes into aemon's character that um the reason he's so good with with dala's child is because he spent a lot of his life when he was younger dealing with children and and um had a lot of love for them in his heart kind of shows you that um he would have been probably an amazing parent if he ever had children uh, and probably an amazing king for how much he cares about people in helping them and trying to be them best selves be their best selves um although you can sort of see his role in the night's watch that he essentially just became the parent for all the men of the night's watch and especially the young people uh we see that with john and a few of the others he takes sam under his wing he takes a lot of pride in trying to help troubled young people and um trying to help children <clears throat> uh so nessie had a few questions about uh about Vela. she wanted to know was he babysitting Vela? Was it a terming factor in saying she was simple? I think definitely she was, he was babysitting Vela. Um, so the reason Vela is not named Monarch of Westeros is she's called simple and feeble, and she's also a woman. So therefore, the Lords of Westeros are like, ugh, women, gross, they can't rule. But um, I, I don't think 
I imagine that it wouldn't be Eamon's testimony that would have pushed them to discounting her. And in, in a lot of sense, Eamon has a lot of compassion from Daron. We can see that in him trying to um, help people become their best selves rather than writing them off. So I don't think that would have been his reaction to Vela, but you never know. Um, I think most other people, if that's if that was true about Vela, um, then it probably would have been obvious to more than others. Um, a follow up question. What happened to Vela and Makar's other grandchildren, uh, Magor and the children of daughters Dela and Ray? Any speculations? So George has a particular habit of essentially writing off female lines and pretending they don't exist. Um, so what happened? Who did Ray and Dela marry? No idea. How many children they have? We don't know. They essentially just um, they essentially just disappear off page into the mists. Uh, what happened to Vela? Again, she's a a female line of the Targaryen family, so no idea. Disappears into the mists of history as far as George is concerned. Uh, Magor, he probably, I believe, there's no talk of Magor having any role in Westeros after that. So may, he may have gone to the Free Cities. Um, that's that's where uh, Arian spent a lot of the time there. So yeah, the Great Spring Sickness could have uh, also uh, taken care of a lot of them, unfortunately. That's right, uh, Rosalie. Um, so... I don't know. It's um, children also die quite a lot, but there's a lot of unaccounted members. Even this isn't even that far back in history. This is in within living memory, like literally Eamon's living memory, all these characters. And they just they just disappear from the narrative. Uh, if you want to be a little bit more uh, tinfoily, you could think that maybe young Griff comes from one of these random Targaryens that George put out into the world and never did anything with. Um, there's definitely an idea that young Griff may be a blackfire, but there's certainly quite a lot of uh, <laughs> unaccounted for Targaryens in recent history, so it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, but thank you for the questions, Nessie. Nessie, the questing beast. Uh, yes, please slam that like button. 143, seven more to go. Put on that hat, and at 200 likes, uh, we're giving away a t-shirt from my Threadless store. I'm not wearing one, but I do have one of the designs behind me, the, the ass waffle <laughs> uh, t-shirts and um, all that other kind of stuff. <clears throat> So after that, it's kind of unclear in between the time that Daron dies and then obviously uh, Makar dies in 233 during the peak rebellion or the peak uprising, I guess it's called. Um, there's there's a gap in Eamon's history. No, there's no real sense of what he did. If they happen at the same time, but they happen one after another. Uh, Arian Brightflame dies, dies in 232, a year before that, having drunk wildfire. The realm essentially went like, whew. Good thing Arian's dead. He probably would have killed Daron to become king, which I would guess that sounds that sounds pretty reasonable to me. Um, so what could Aemon have done in this time frame? He could have gone back to the Citadel. That's very possible, and just uh, continued his studies. But I'm gonna guess that he found a way to become the maester for maybe one of his sisters, or he remained at court, or um, maybe hung around with Egg's growing family, or she or Sea Star and Blood Raven. That kind of thing, uh, because, again, Eamon has such a strong connection to his family that it doesn't seem like he spent a lot of time at the Citadel after his initial uh, training that that he viewed it as part of his his role to 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 be around them, that kind of thing. Um, and again, the idea that Egg's children know Eamon and call him Uncle Maester and that he bounced them on their knee and played with them and they were all they knew him well suggests that after Daron's death that he did not just disappear from their lives. Um, so that would be my guess there. 
So we get the great council. Yay. Another great council. Awesome. Love this stuff. Why? Because Daron is dead. Arian's dead. And the options for king at this point are not looking so hot, according to the Lords of Westeros. It should go to Vayela Targaryen, daughter of Daron. Um, but that doesn't end up happening, as I talked about. Uh, Vayela gets dismissed for being feeble and simple-minded, whatever that means. Um, it could have just been like an anti-woman thing. She was also quite young, but who knows? Uh, after that, it should have gone to Magor, son of Arion. But again, he's quite young, but all, and he's a, he would have been a child king. But another thing that gets held against them is that Arion is legitimately crazy. Everyone hated Arion, Arion the monstrous. So for some reason, that means Magor cannot be king. Uh, don't quite understand the logic of that one. It may have just been like, we don't want to have a boy king for quite a long time. Like, let's let's get an adult in here instead of uh, passing it to them. So those two get passed over. Uh, the surprise entrance, like uh, WWE music, the Blackfire song plays. Amy's Blackfire shows up to push his claim. He gets um, safe passage from Bloodraven. He tells him, everything will be totally fine, Anis. You can come put your claim forward. We're going to bury the hatchet in this whole Blackfire thing. Don't worry about it. Whoops. Bloodraven chops its head off. Oof. Oh, did we hit there? We hit it. 152. All right. Hat time. Let me put on this baby. Ah, there we go. <laughs> Wizard hat engaged. Thank you all for slamming that like button. Um, oh, Joanne Evans got her T-shirt last week. You love it. Excellent. All the San Rixia designs. There we go. And then uh, let me show off the other one. Pay no attention to those books. Uh, and this is the the old Germ hat at 175 likes. So essentially, the choice at this point comes down to Maester Aemon, who's a, a maester, or Aegon, who's an adult and he has children and he has a a good understanding of the people. He's well liked. Um, he seems to be egg seems to be the obvious choice here, but but he's the obvious choice. That's not who gets picked. Aemon is picked to be king of Westeros, and he says, nah, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to become king myself. Um, he talks about this. I mean, um, he doesn't he doesn't particularly talk about being what he would have been like as king. But you can see that there's a lot of reasons like we talked about that he would not want to become it. Um, obviously there's the example of his uncle, Ares the first, who was a very ineffective king, um, because he spent all of his time in his books and trying to study prophecy and magic and bring back the dragons while the realm was left to his counselors and largely blood Raven. Uh, Aemon may, may have had a suspicion that would have been his life and he didn't really want to do that to them. Um, oh, thank you for the, uh, the super sticker, Joanne Evans, $3. Thank you so much. Very, very generous. Um, yes, Aaron, I do remember, uh, Amanda's video on Bear the Blessed, uh, feeble Targaryen women. There's, there's certain code words George's use, George's use, um, for different kinds of characters and what it means exactly. One of them is bookish. Um, that usually means prophecy obsessed, um, which usually means that they're a, a similar kind of thing, but for the male members, um, or for the female members of the family, uh, where were we? So this is probably the second time that he found his uh, his vows tested because obviously Aemon is sworn to the Citadel. He can have no children. He can hold no titles. He gives up his claims to everything in life. That's sort of the deal with it. And here's not only the Lords of Westeros, but also the High Septon um, and uh, the Maesters essentially come to Aemon and say, like, listen, you took these vows, but it's totally OK. We will. We will forgive you. The gods will forgive you. You can give up your vows. You can become king. Um, he ends up 
Yeah, he ends up saying no to this probably after quite a lot of think about it. Uh, his vows very much tested at this point. Um, and it could have come down to a choice for him that Eamon felt that um, where could he do the most good for the realm, especially given his interests and the way that he's constantly chasing prophecy and magic and dragons and all these other kind of things. Like, could he do the most good as king where he a lot of his time would have had to been devoted to politics and like power brokering and trying to fight the black fires and all these other kind of things? Or could he do more good if he stayed a maester and tried to essentially continue his research and find the answers to these higher mysteries that if they come true, well, then isn't that if he could figure them out and the Targaryens can use them? Well, isn't that a way that he could uh, better suit the realm, better use his skills? I imagine that's kind of what he ended up thinking about other than its vows that um, that egg would probably make the better king. But Aemon would make the better Septim Barth, essentially. Oh, super chat here from Morley. Uh, $10. Thank you again, Mor. You're on fire today. Uh, did Maester Aemon knows who Cold Hands was if uh, Cold Hands is one of Raven's Teeth that went with him to the wall? Yes. If if that's who Cold Hands is, if he's one of the Raven's Teeth, then definitely Aemon would know him. Um, him and Blood Raven went to the wall together with the Raven's Teeth. Um, I do wonder the relationship, how it continued after Aemon. I mean, after Blood Raven disappeared um, to become the Three-Eyed Raven and Aemon stands on the wall, did he try and contact him? What happened to the Raven's teeth? Were there messages passed between them? That would have been super fascinating. Aemon doesn't talk about it. Uh, Blood Raven doesn't talk about it. So we we can only really speculate. But yes, he would definitely know who uh, Cold Hands was if that's if he's one of the Raven's teeth. Um, and there's actually a quote about this. I talked about this earlier. The Tyrion has a quote about um, how his mind is a weapon and he needs books essentially to sharpen it. This is a quote from Maester Aemon to John. He says, knowledge is a weapon, John. Arm yourself well before you ride forth to battle. So when you keep in mind how much he's focused on the others and the coming long night and the prince that was promised and all these things, you can see that his choice to not become king and continue his research very much falls in line with that. He, he thinks there's a battle coming, therefore... The way he can contribute the most is his knowledge and his ability to research and put things together in ways that other people can't since he's basically a genius. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense for why he turned it down, but it had to be a hard choice. Uh, as we know from his dealings with his nieces and nephews and grandnieces and grandnephews that Eamon very much would want to be king in order to essentially be the father to the realm and not just the ruler to to raise them up and be a good person and try and help the poor and all these other kind of things. Those, those two things must've very much been in conflict in his brain. Um, so yes, Eamon resists. He says, don't give it to me, give it to egg. Egg is uh, proclaimed King of Westeros. We talked about all the reasons that egg makes a better King than Eamon, mostly that he's interested, but he has uh, a lot more life experiences that would make him a better King against the Blackfires and the challenges that are currently faced. But Aemon at this point makes an odd choice. He does not decide to stay on as like essentially the Septon Barth to King Aim to King Egg or become Grand Maester or become Egg's Maester or anything like that. He decides that he has to go to Castle Black and join the Night's Watch. Um, we get a quote here for, again from J.R. Mormont. This is not from Aemon himself. And this is one of those things that I think people should keep in mind when you read these things back from J.R., that Aemon is holding things back from these explanations. Nowhere in here is any explanation 
or any reference to the bringing back of the dragons, the prince that was promised, like the Jade Compendium, Septon Barth's writings, all of that is left out. So this is basically what Eamon told Jaor, not the whole story. Okay, so here we go. Yes and no. First, they offered it quietly to Eamon, and quietly he refused. The godsmen for him to serve, not to rule, he told them. He had sworn a vow and would not break it, though the high septon himself offered to absolve it. Well, no sane man wanted any blood of Arians on the throne, and Daron's girl was a lackwit besides being female. <sighs> um, so they had no choice but to turn to Eamon's younger brother, Aegon V of his name, Aegon the Unlikely, they called him, born the fourth son of the fourth son. Eamon knew, and rightly, that if he remained at court, that those who disliked his brother's rule would seek to use him, and so he came to the wall. And he remained while his brother and his brother's son and his son each reigned and died in turn until Jamie Lannister put an end to the line of dragon kings. So again, this is what Eamon told Mormont as his, his explanations. But there's a lot of stuff absent here, especially the, the fact that um, the Castle Black and the Winterfell libraries have books that are nowhere else in Westeros, that it seems very likely that these parts of the world resisted King Baylor's purge of all dragon and prophecy knowledge. Um, <laughs> yeah, I pronounce it anus, anus blackfire, anus blackfire. That's the correct way to say it. I say, uh, mostly because it's funnier. Um, and there's another, there's another weird thing in this explanation. Eamon can't be forced to become King. They can't just say like, Eamon, we're putting you on the throne. You have no choice on it. It's like, he obviously has a choice. Um, and the other example is obviously Vagon Targaryen. Vagon remained a uh, maester and an archmaester at the Citadel all throughout the reigns of Jaehaerys and those that came after him. He was basically just forgotten about in the realm. So it's not like it's not historically true that if he remained at court or if he remained in Westeros proper and not the Night's Watch that he would have no choice but to be used as a weapon against his brother. It's like that's that's not true. So or it's not the, the it's not the total explanation, but it's plausible enough. So it seems like that's probably what Eamon tells people when they ask him why he turned it down, why he came to the Night's Watch. I was like, well, I didn't want to be a bothered egg. It's like he could have essentially just been his hand to the king if he wanted to. He decides not to. Um, again, we go back to this quote. Knowledge is a weapon, John. Arm yourself well before you die, um, before you ride forth to battle. The his focus on the others, his for his focus on the long night, his focus on prophecy, these all have to be factored into the fact that if there's a war coming and it's gonna come from the north and it's gonna come from the others breaking down the wall, Eamon has positioned himself to be of the greatest service to the realm by being there on the front lines and understanding what's happening and being able to relay it back to Westeros. Um <clears throat> uh, let me check any let me check on these questions, make sure. There's none that, um, oh, we're getting to Rhaegar and stuff. A cool zombie Aemon. Oh, guys. Probably, though. Um, oh, Nessie wants to know where was Aemon at Starpike for the Peak Uprising? Probably not. He's not really a, uh, a battle sort of guy, so I guess he would not be there. Um, uh, Kevin on Patreon, he says, what was the relationship between Bloodraven and Aemon like? Did Aemon know he didn't really die when he went missing? Um, that's one part of the relationship is it didn't just, it wasn't just one when they were, when he was a kid It's obviously one when blood Raven went to the night's watch with him. Uh, we're about to get to that. So I'll answer that one in a second. Um, so he leaves to, um, to join the night's watch and we get an account from it from a feast for crows. Eamon's talking to Sam. Um, he gets made fun of essentially for like, what is Eamon looking at? He's blind. He can't see anything by dairy on the dick. Um, this is what he says. The old man hurt him. 
Though Eamon's eyes had dimmed and gone dark, there was nothing wrong with his ears. I was not born blind, he reminded them. When I last passed this way, I saw every rock and tree in Whitecap and watched the gray gulls flying in our wake. I was five and thirty and had been a maester of the chain for sixteen years. Egg wanted me to help him rule, but I knew my place was here. He sent me north aboard the Golden Dragon and insisted that his friend Sir Duncan see me safe to Eastwatch. No recruit had arrived at the wall with so much pomp since Nymeria sent the watch six kings and golden fetters. Egg emptied out the dungeons too, so I would not need to say my vows alone. My honor guard, he called them. One was no less a man than Brendan Rivers. Later, he was chosen Lord Commander. So Egg is pushing Eamon to stay, and Eamon says no, decides to go with the Night's Watch, and then also gets sent there with Blood Raven and all the Ravens, all the Ravens' teeth, which is uh, curious. Um, oh, Losery Vlaren says, did Blood Raven give Dark Sister Eamon or tell him where it is? Uh, George has said that Ashea from History of Westeros asked him, um, did Blood Raven take Dark Sister with him? George said yes. Uh, I would guess it's still in his cave somewhere. A lot of people have suggested that maybe Mira or Hodor will find a sword in there and pick it up and it will be Dark Sister. Um, again, when you look at where Blood Raven goes in his life from this point forward, he becomes Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, then becomes the Three-Eyed Raven, becomes this manipulator of history and magic and like sending dreams and all these other kind of things. The fact that him and Aemon both ended up there is curious, very curious, considering their their relationship to magic and prophecy. Um, I don't know if Blood Raven did that on purpose, if he got himself sent to the wall, if Aemon pushed for it, but Aemon's um but Aemon's presence there is he chose it. He chose the Night's Watch. He could have gone back to the Citadel, he could have gone to Dragonstone, he could have been Grand Maester if he wanted to. He said, No, I have to go to the Night's Watch. Um, the relationship between them probably became um they were probably thickest thieves, especially when Blood Raven became Lord Commander of the Night's Watch after a while. Um, the rising cold winds, Craster's probably becoming active around this time. The others may have started to become active too. You can imagine the two of them. Uh, there, there were no better characters essentially to be on the wall when the others start arriving um, and when they start becoming active again in Westeros. Uh, and then we also get the advice that Aemon gave to. Uh, Egg before he left. He also relates it to Jon Snow. Uh, one of his, I, I I often think about the fact that Aemon sees so much of his younger brother in Jon, and that's how he ends up treating him and gives him the same counsel, gives him the same advice. It's um, you can imagine that it, it probably explains quite a lot of why Aemon is so kind to Jon and he wants to help him so much. It's like it's like he's trying to be to John what he wasn't to Egg when Egg asked for his advice. When he asked him to stay and help him rule, he left, eventually leading to Summerhall, which we're going to get to in a second. But it's almost like he he's feel he feels like he's making up a debt he has to his younger brother um, when he tells this to John. Get sad about Eamon, guys. That's uh, that's one of those things that sticks with me reading these back. So um, here we go. Allow me to give my lord one last piece of counsel. The old man had said the same counsel I had once given my brother when we parted for the last time. He was three and thirty when the great council chose him to mount the Iron Throne, a man grown with sons of his own, yet in some ways still a boy. Egg had an innocence to him, a sweetness we all loved. Kill the boy within you, I told him the day I took ship for the wall. It takes a man to rule, an Aegon, not an egg. Kill the boy and let the man be born. The old man felt John's face. 
You are half the age that Egg was, and your own burden is a crueler one, I fear. You have little joy of your command, but I think you have the strength in you to do the things that must be done. Kill the boy, Jon Snow. Winter is almost upon us. Kill the boy and let the man be born. Oh, that is uh, extremely heartfelt. It's not just good advice. It's he's, he's seeing Egg again. Egg's alive in front of him. He sees Egg and John and that he has to leave him again, that he wants to go back to the Citadel. I can't imagine how much that hurt to leave behind his brother, to leave behind his, uh, the person that he sees his brother in the most, one that he failed before, the one that, um, the one that he couldn't help. Uh, so getting to that, I talked about this in my Pyres and Blood video. I'm going to quickly cover it here if you want to watch it. There's a link down in the description. I'll probably put one up here if you're watching right, over here somewhere. If you're watching this on a on comment on a, on replay, um, but I have the opinion that Summerhall was caused by Egg, that it wasn't like the Maesters trying to stop him. It wasn't like assassins or anything like that, that he was trying to hatch the eggs using wildfire to fulfill a prophecy and restore the dragons and the power of House Targaryen and that the information he was acting on, the ritual he was trying to do, um, the example he was trying to follow. I think he was trying to follow a vision of Danny in the future, basically that all of this probably came from Aemon himself. When you're looking around at like, where did I get this information from? He's not a scholarly person. He's not, um, he's not somebody that's deeply interested in um, prophecy and, and dragons and all these other kind of things. But Aemon is, you have to imagine that's like, it's not like he went to the night's watch and then never sent a letter South again. <clears throat> they, they probably, Corresponded all the time, Egg talking about his troubles, Aemon telling about what's going on with the wall and what Blood Raven's doing, all these other kind of things. Um, and we also see this when uh, Aemon encounters Melisandre and Stannis, that one of the reasons he's so scared for the children is that he knows that something about Azor Ahai and the prince that was promised and bringing back dragons involves sacrificing children. Um, that he recognizes it instantly. He knows that's what she's going to do without her saying anything. Um, you, you have to imagine that this may have been that he has experienced with this kind of thing, that he knows someone else, a king that felt that he needed dragons and magic in order to restore the realm and save it, who ended up doing something horrific and awful in order to try to get that. And that may have been his younger brother, Egg, who did it at his own, his own suggestion. Um, he may have never thought. Uh, I actually... As part of that theory, I think that he was tr that um, Aegon the Fifth was thinking about sacrificing Rhaella and um, and Rhaegar on the pyre to hatch the dragons, which makes it even more uh, tragic and heartbreaking. But even if it even if it wasn't exactly that scenario, you can see that Aemon being the source and reinforcing Egg's dreams and listening to Daron, considering how much time he spent with him, that Summerhall is at some level his fault that he feels a great loss that his there's all these warnings that he that Eamon knows that following prophecy and trying to chase the dragons essentially destroys people that do it and it destroyed his own family that's like um death can only pay for life kind of thing and in that case it's the life that was um the deaths that were given up to the to the dragons and prophecy were his own family you know kind of like the idea of like flying too close to the sun um, that you're trying to peek behind things that you're not supposed to. It's especially with the loss of his eye, his eyesight eventually um, can imagine that he feels that the destruction of House Targaryen is in large part Aemon's own fault. Even if it's not exactly true, even if it's not literally true, 
that everything that happened is his fault, he probably feels a great deal of guilt about it and personal loss. Um, yeah. Although we know that he he grieved greatly for his younger brother and his um, all those that died at Summerhall and what happened afterwards, but he does not. He doesn't give up on prophecy and magic and dragons, um, or at least he doesn't totally. Eventually, we know that he tried again, that he tried to interpret the signs and he tried to um, essentially make up for his mistake. Well, I got it. I got it wrong once, but I know it this time. I know how to read it this time. I, we made a mistake last time. We got it. And that is with um, with Rhaegar, uh, Prince Rhaegar, who was born on the on during the tragedy at Summerhall born outside of it uh we have a quote here from uh Eamon's death where or right before it where he says Rhaegar I thought the smoke was from the fire that devoured Summerhall on the day of his birth to sell from the tears shed from those who died spoiler a lot of those tears are his own he shared my belief when he was young but later became persuaded that it was his own son who filled the prophecy for Comet had been seen above King's Landing on the night Aegon was conceived and Rhaegar was certain the bleeding star had to be a comet. Um, this is a large part of the influence that Aemon has on Rhaegar and the relationship between them, I think is the the missing piece that a lot of people like wonder, like, what was Rhaegar doing? What did he think? Like, why, why was he trying to do these things? Aemon and Summerhall and the relationship between Daron and himself, uh, as well as Ares I, is probably the missing piece. Um, as we know, at some point during his during his life, Rhaegar, for unknown reasons, he starts writing letters to Aemon by by Raven. Rhaegar has never met Aemon. Nobody he knows uh, as really knows much about Aemon because he left the the realm when he was so young. Um, his father Ares II may have um, had some experience with Aemon, but probably not that much. He would have been a child when uh, when Aemon left for the Watch. But for some reason, Rhaegar sends him letters and they start talking about prophecy They start talking about magic um, and they convince each other that Rhaegar is the prince that was promised, that he's the right answer, that Summerhall was a tragedy, but the cost that had to be paid for for birthing the, uh, this child of destiny. Um, it's also around this time that we know that Rhaegar suddenly decides he has to become a warrior and the weird part about that is before that, he was basically a clone of Aemon, a young Aemon. We get the same sort of story about like, oh, Rhaella must have been eating books when she was uh, pregnant with Rhaegar, that kind of thing. Um, I think, as I said in my video, Pyres and Blood, I think the thing that, uh, or was it in, um, it's in one of the two videos, I talk about what made Rhaegar start writing Aemon about these things. And I think it's that Rhaegar in the library found notes from Aemon either about the stuff that Ares found or notes on Daron and recognize something about himself. And the two of them started talking. Um, it, it seems to be the only link between them. Um, and they become extremely excited. Um, I mean, we, we hear from that quote that eventually they're like, okay, well, maybe not you, but definitely your kid. Um, so if you're looking for which character in the story currently knows the most about what Rhaegar was doing, I mean, uh, we've seen John Connington. We've seen all these other characters. Aemon's the probably the one that knew his heart the most. So if you want to understand Rhaegar, I think going back and rereading a lot of Aemon's quotes and things that can be about Rhaegar, especially um, his death on the cinnamon wind, definitely can do the part. But it's also the, um, the great feeling of tragedy about it because not only did Aemon push Rhaegar into believing he was the prince that was promised and the fulfillment of prophecy, 
in another way, this is again, Eamon's chasing, chasing magic and all these things that again, destroyed his family. What would Rhaegar have been like? You can imagine this going through his head. What would Rhaegar's life have been like if Eamon never wrote back, if he burned the letters as soon as they showed up and he never said anything, if he never convinced Rhaegar that he was the chosen one. Um, and in that sense, much in the same way as Egg, you can probably understand that the great personal loss and the great um, feeling of responsibility for Robert's rebellion and the fall of House Targaryen, the deaths of Aegon and Rhaenys, that all of these are blood on Aemon's hands and it's blood he can never wash out. Um, he tries in his own way to try and make it up, like when he's tutoring Jon Snow and when he's trying to stop Melisandre and Stannis from um, pursuing the Azor High prophecy and the sacrificing of children. You, you can see these, read these back and read them as him trying to undo the own mistakes of his life, trying to save the children that he could not save, the ones that he essentially doomed by chasing this, uh, this world that everybody knows you shouldn't. That um, and I think that I think that hurts the most, uh, honestly, among all these things. It's that reading these back and and dubbing in characters, dubbing in the names Rhaenys and Aegon, dubbing in um the lost family, those that died at Summerhall, the, all those killed in Robert's Rebellion. I mean, how many tens of thousands died because Aemon answered Rhaegar's letter? I'm sure he feels that um that great loss all the time. It's probably it seems to have rather than make him bitter and um bitter and completely broken it's kind of inspired him to do better about just serving those around him serving the night's watch um uh, rosanante given how danny intuitively structures drogo and her child's pyre could this ritual be a means for catalyzing the birth of dragons and the tradition of burning the dead targs i think it's the other way around <clears throat> i think danny's patching of the dragons is such a powerful moment in history that it's that the vision of it has been essentially moving backwards in time and that all the Targaryens that are trying to um, the hatch dragons and they're trying to bring about the prince that was promised, they think they're seeing a vision of something in the far past or something like that. But in fact, they're seeing Daenerys and trying to, um, and trying to, what's the right word, trying to mimic it, thinking it's them. Ugh, I'm very sad now. The enormous weight of all those lives on his heart just only made him kinder. Oh, only two likes away from 175. Put on that, uh, put on that old wizard, the uh, germ hat, and 200 likes for a free shirt. So slam that like button. Um, well, weird timing after an emotional moment that I'm still kind of processing in my head. Um, so then we get to the uh, the current day. Um, I thought I would just after we've gone through all this history, we talk about the loss, his feelings of um, responsibility for Summerhall and Robert's rebellion, the deaths of Rhaegar and his children, and all the deaths of Aegon. Um, all these other kind of things. I want to read the uh, "Love is the Death of Duty" speech and keep all these things in mind as um, as I'm reading it because you can see. Oh, we got it. Hang on a second. Um, germ hat time. <clears throat> all right, there we go. Um, blurry dreams of hacking dragons in a pyre wouldn't mean much. Well, all the visions are blurry. That's sort of the thing we see that from Daron the Drunkard that his vision of the death of Baylor Breakspear is so symbolic and hard to understand that he thinks it's him. Daron thinks that it's actually his death that's coming, not Baylor's. Um, oh, I just wanted to get a question from uh, Patreon. Uh, Gray Waste Tim says, "What do you think Aemon would have made of uh, young Griff? Would he have accepted him as Rhaegar's true son, or do you question after living, after uh, having lived during so many Blackfire rebellions?" Um, 
if he knew about young Griff, he, I think he would have gone to him just like he did Danny. Um, I'm not <laughs> about doing the floss. What do you people? Um, I think he definitely would have questioned it. He has a highly, highly attuned mind and he's very good at seeing through bullshit. So he definitely would have questioned young Griff, but he would have at least investigated it. Um, all right. So here we go. Here's the, uh, <clears throat> not the whole love after duty speech. I cut out some of John's parts, but here we go. Um, so they will not love the old man answered for love is the bane of honor, the death of duty. That did not sound right to John, yet he said nothing. The maester was a hundred years old and a high officer of the night's watch. It was not his place to contradict him. The old man seemed to sense his doubts. Tell me, John, if the day should ever come when your Lord father must needs choose between honor on one hand and those he loves on the other, what would he do? What is honor compared to a woman's love? What is duty of the feel against the feel of a newborn son in your arms or the memory of a brother's smile? Wind in words, wind in words. We are only human. The gods have fashioned us for love. This is our great glory and our great tragedy. The men who formed the Night's Watch knew that only their courage shielded the realm from the darkness to the north. They knew they must have no divided loyalties to weaken their resolve. So they vowed they would have no wives nor children. A craven can be as brave as any man when there is nothing to fear, and we all do our duty when there is no cost to it. How easy it seems then to walk the path of honor. Yet sooner or late in every man's life comes a day when it is not easy, a day when he must choose. The old man laid a withered and spotted hand on his shoulder. It hurts, boy, he said softly. Oh yes, choosing has always hurt and always will, I know. Maester Eamon sighed. Have you heard nothing I've told you, John? Do you think you are the first? He shook his ancient head, a gesture weary beyond words. Three times the gods saw fit to test my vows. Once when I was a boy, once in the fullness of my manhood, and once when I had grown old. I then my strength had fl was fled, my eyes grown dim. Yet that last choice was as cruel as the first. My ravens would bring news from the south, words darker than their wings. The ruin of my house, the death of my kin, disgrace and desolation. What could I have done? Old, blind, frail. I was... Helpless as a suckling babe, yet it still grieved me to sit forgotten as they cut down my brother's poor grandson and his son and even the little children. John was shocked to see the shine of tears in the old man's eyes. Who are you? He asked quietly, almost in dread. Hang on a second. Uh, I'm just going to ban this guy. Um, a toothless smile quivered on the ancient lips. Only a maester of the Citadel bound in service to the Castle Black and the Night's Watch. In my order, we put aside our house names and we take our vows and donned the collar. The old man touched the maester's chain that hung loosely around his thin, fleshless neck. My father was Mykar, the first of his name, and my brother Aegon reigned after him in my stead. My grandfather named me for Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, who was his uncle or his father, depending on which tale you believe. Aemon, he called me. Aemon Targaryen? John could scarcely believe it. Once, the old man said. Once. So you see, John, I do know. And knowing I will not tell you to stay or go, you have to make that choice yourself and live with it the rest of your days, as I have. His voice fell to a whisper, as I have. Oof. So, yeah, read, think, read that back in your head and sub in all the different tragedies, all those he's lost, all the ways that his pursuit of magic and prophecy has put him in danger and the sacrifices he's made in order to try and preserve the Night's Watch. And it, it, there's a tremendous amount of hurt in those words. And they're not obvious at first. They only really only see them when you look back. These are not, these are not words that are um, 
essentially um they're not passive they're not they're not high-minded they're very personal to him um it's i think that's one of those chapters that really deserves going back and rereading a few times especially after the stream like if you guys have some time go back and and reread that whole chapter and everything he says and all of his facial contortions um and see how that uh how those go into one into the other it's very plain that he's in a great amount of pain as he's talking about all these things um so i i've got one more quote to read and that's um his death on the cinnamon wind but i thought i'd answer some questions uh, we're going to go over a little bit today, though. So, I mean, it's one of my favorite topics, so that was probably going to happen anyway. Um, so Eric Ferg says, what specifically does Aemon mean when he says there are three heads of the dragon and he was too old to be one of them? So there's been an idea ever since Aegon the Conqueror within the Targaryen family that the three heads of the dragon meant three dragon riders, essentially, or three. Um, yeah, basically three dragon riders that um, Visenya, Aegon and Rhaenys were the originals and that they're following some kind of pattern um from i mean obviously the prophecy of the prince that was promised the three-headed dragon is kind of a thing that um that they brought with them from valeria and the the interpretation aemon has and the one that actually that rhaegar shares is that there there's not one chosen one that there's three of them that um instead of being one dragon there's the three-headed dragon all three dragon riders or valerians or targaryens asking acting in concert basically um and that he's too old to be one of them means that he's he's on the he's on his deathbed. He's not going to make it to Danny. He's not going to make it to um, to ever see a dragon. Most likely that he can't be one of the people to help bring the end to the darkness. Um, let's see here. One from uh, uh, Ramona. She says, how much did Eamon know on Rhaegar's life and pursuit of prophecy? I would say he probably know him the best. Um, rereading his quotes about Rhaegar are probably the closest we'll ever get to knowing what Rhaegar actually thought, what his goals were, what he was trying to do. Um, so especially the A Feast for Crows Samwell chapter, I would go back and read that one. And that'll be, that's the clearest look at who Rhaegar was a person. Um, see here. Catherine uh, Furseth on Twitter said, um, Aemon deserves to be more fully examined and understood. How would you say he fits in the Targaryen stereotype? And how does he not? Um, Aemon fits very much in the Targaryen stereotype of uh, Targaryen princes that think that they are going to bring about the prophesized uh, hero or that they will be responsible for helping them. That's a nearly constant theme throughout their family. Um, ever since Danny's the Dreamer, there's been just a, a running theme of all these young, uh, all these young members of their family trying to follow the great beyond, basically, and the great plan from uh, of the prince that was promised and the return of the dragons. Although the return of the dragons part must have been pretty funny for quite a while because they're like, what do you mean return of the dragons? Why do we need more of them? We have them. Even um, up until Aegon the dragon's bane, they had dragons. So that part probably didn't make a lot of sense until after they all died out. And that may have, that seems to have definitely inspired quite a lot of Targaryen uh, princes and princesses to believe that they can bring the dragons back and that will be the fulfillment of prophecy. Um the one way that he doesn't really fit the stereotype is that he's not really interested in being like any kind of conqueror. He's not interested in ruling. He very much is of the mind that um, him and Aegon, his younger brother, both believed that you could use dragons to improve the world, basically. Uh, something that Danny also believes that you can use their firepower and their massive threat of death to essentially wipe clean the world of like evil, that kind of thing. Um, which 
probably pretty misguided. Um, not really a thing you can do. If it was true, then there would be no evil people left because there's been no been no shortage of dragons during the Valyrian Empire. You know, military might is usually not a good source of social good, but that's just kind of how it goes. Um, uh, Danny McKay, uh, this is something Aaron wanted me to read. Uh, Aaron M. Mr. Hammer is in the chat. Uh, Danny McKay sent to me on Twitter a drink he called the Amentini. Um, so two ounces of spiced rum, two ounces of Bailey's, uh, one lovely ancient dead man in a cinnamon rim glass served while bawling your eyes out. <laughs> uh, you can't really can't really put in uh, an ancient dead man in your drink. That's uh, that's a little bit on a uh, on the side of cannibalism. But I mean, the rest of it sounds pretty good. That sounds like a pretty good drink. The um, the Amentini. <laughs> you, so Bailey spiced rum, Bailey's and cinnamon. So that's going to be a uh, pretty warm drink. But thank you, Danny. <laughs> thank you for the drink. Somebody should make one. See how it tastes without the ancient dead man in it. Don't do that part. Don't go grave digging. Um, so the the part we haven't really gotten to is um is Eamon's journey after leaving the Night's Watch and John behind. He does he does his best. He gives John the speech about kill the boy. Um, he he and John essentially save uh, Dollar's child from Melisandre sacrificing it. They both correctly believe that. As soon as she can, Mel's going to burn them alive for King's blood, um, likely meaning that monster will be the one burned by Melisandre, probably alongside Shireen, um, if they can get him from Val. Val seems pretty, uh, pretty adamant that she's not going to give up the kid. But uh, another thing that happens is on their journey, Eamon, he's, he has a lot of growing uh, senility. He starts losing his mind. He starts losing track of where he is, who he is. Um, the, the line, egg I dreamed I was old, shows that. Eamon is believing that he is still a young man um, and is kind of he's, he's losing track of reality kind of steadily uh, on the journey. So the journey is obviously that Sam's supposed to go to Old Town, become a maester. And then uh, Eamon's supposed to go to Old Town to tell the um, the Night's Watch. About, I mean, to tell the, the, the maesters of the Citadel about what's happening with the uh, invasion of the others and all that other kind of things. Um, although that definitely changes for Eamon. Once they get to Bravos and they start hearing about Daenerys Targaryen and her three dragons, Sam describes that after hearing about this, that Aemon essentially, who had been seeming like he was circling the drain and about to die at any moment, suddenly gets this rush of energy back in him. He that and becomes convinced that he needs to go to Daenerys, that he needs to go to her and be her maester and um, counsel her and relate all he knows. And that she's and that she survived the sack of King's Landing. She survived the downfall of House Targaryen. As far as Aemon's concerned, she she is the last member of his family alive, not knowing about John, obviously. Um, and as I would I would read the uh, the quote here. This is from um, Aemon's last chapter. Although actually he died before the chapter. Sam is um, thinking about this in retrospect afterwards after he gives his eulogy. Uh, so here is Aemon's dying words. All of these are very important, by the way, not only just for plot and um, and prophecy and content and all that kind of things, but just like for understanding Aemon and, and how he sees himself and how he sees the world and how George used that to inform the magical plots that are coming. But here we go. <clears throat> you must tell them, Sam, he said, the Archmaesters, you much make them understand men who were at the Citadel when I the men who were at the Citadel when I was have been dead for 50 years. These others never knew me. My letters in Old Town, 
They must have read like the ravings of an old man whose wits had fled. You must convince them where I could not. Tell them, Sam. Tell them how it is upon the wall, the whites, the white walkers, the creeping cold. No, the old man said. It must be you. Tell them the, the prophecy, my brother's dream. Lady Melisandre has misread the sign. Stannis. Stannis has some dragon blood in him. Yes, but his brother did as well. Rael, Egg's, Egg's little girl. She was how they came by it. Their father's mother. She used to call me un Uncle Maester. And she was a little girl. I remembered that, so I allowed myself to hope. Perhaps I wanted to. We all deceive ourselves when, when we want to believe. Melisandre most of all, I think. Sword is wrong. She has to know that. Light without heat. An empty glamour. The sword is wrong. And the false light can only lead us deeper into darkness, Sam. Daenerys is our hope. Tell them that. At the Citadel, make them listen. They must send her a maester. Daenerys must be counseled, taught, protected. For all these years I've lingered, waiting, watching. And now the day has dawned, I am too old. I am dying, Sam. Tears ran from his blind white eyes at that admission. Death should hold no fear for a man as old as me, but it does. Isn't that silly? It's always dark where I am, so why should I fear the darkness? Yet I cannot help but wonder what will follow when the last warmth leads my body. Will I feast forever in the Father's golden halls, the Septons say? Will I talk with Egg again, find Daron whole and happy, hear my sisters singing to their children? What if the Horse Lords have the truth, it, the truth of it? Will I ride forever through the night sky, forever on a stallion made of flame? Or must I return again to this veil of sorrow? Who can say truly? Who has been the wall of death to see? Only the whites. And we know what they are like. We know. Oh, very, uh, very hard to read passage. And you're going to feel the enormous loss he feels. A life that's been unfinished. Especially the, the part about him sending the letters to the, the maesters in Old Town and being ignored. He was trying to help. He was trying to let them know what was coming the whole way and just felt totally ignored. Um, so one thing that, that definitely comes up in this speech and you guys are talking about in the chat, and actually this is a question from uh, Eric Ferg um, as well, where there's a large question if Aemon ever figures out who Jon is, if he ever figures out he's a Targaryen, if he's the son of Rhaegar, um, and that's the story of Rhaegar and Lyanna and all those things. And I'm going to say no. I'm going to say that he never really, he didn't piece it together, um, especially the way that he's talking about Daenerys here, that um, Daenerys is the hope that he has to go and counsel him, go to the, has to get the Citadel and get a maester and send someone to her right away. Um, I think, I think that leads to the idea that maybe if, if Aemon still had his sight and could look at Jon, maybe he would recognize some part of the Targaryen in him, but um, as far as he's concerned, it seems very much that um, he never really figured it out, because especially because it doesn't seem like Eamon really has any knowledge of Ned Stark. Um, there's not really a sense that they were friends, that they knew each other, that they even crossed paths all that much. So one of the ways that um, people tend to point out that like maybe John isn't Ned's son is like maybe a difference in personality, maybe something more like Lyanna, something more like Rhaegar than Ned. And Eamon just doesn't have that knowledge. He may have um, he may have suspected or at least wondered about whatever happened to Lyanna down in Dorne when he heard the story and what happened to Rhaegar. But as far as anyone knows, um, it, it seems like not a lot of people have really thought seriously about Jon in universe not being Ned's son because it's Ned. He's um, he's such an upright guy. If he says Jon's his son, then he must be because that's. 
That's Ned's reputation. He doesn't lie. He doesn't um, mislead people. So, oh, good point. Uh, Sasuke says, so Benjen never bothered letting Eamon know either. Uh, I would guess not. That uh, Benjen likely knew um, John's true identity from his role in the knife, the, the Night of the Laughing Tree, but it seems that he kept that to himself. Him and Ned essentially took that secret to their graves. And maybe it just would have hurt Eamon more to know that uh, who John was. That must have been, yeah, that must have been a pretty strong, um, strong temptation from Benjen to let Eamon know that he's not alone in the world. Um, but also, you can imagine that if Benjen ever told Eamon, there's a chance that that would, you, you can't keep secrets and tell people them, basically. So if Benjen really wanted um, little John to stay safe and for the Robert's hammer to never fall in the north, then he could never tell anybody. He had to keep it between himself and, and uh, Ned Stark. And I think it actually adds to Eamon's, um, adds to Eamon's quality of character. That the reason he's helping John, the reason that he's putting him through these things, the reason that he thinks he has so much potential is not because he's a family member, but because of the quality of his character and um, his performance as a person, that it's a merit thing and not a, um, not a family thing. Clearly for Daenerys, the reason he wants to go help her is that she's a member of his family, but also she has the dragons. Um, I, I, think it just, I think it just adds to the tragedy as well. That a that Eamon is talking to John, thinking about how much he reminds him of his younger brother Egg, and it's it's not because he has a secret knowledge of it. It's that he um it's just that he thinks that John's a great person, just like his younger brother, and that he thinks the Night's Watch would be better off with uh with John in charge, and it'd be better off with John being uh, a good Lord Commander. Mm. The irony, though, is not lost on us as, as readers that, as it turns out, Eamon's just trying to help a a hurt young man um, who's been thrust into power way too young and is struggling to deal with it and keep together the night's watch and against impossible odds. And I, I think that's one of the things that I worth, I think works really well with prophecy is that a large lesson that Amon's learned throughout his life is that if you try and make prophecy come true, if you try and help the prince that was promised, or if you identify them, try to make them become what you think they can then that tends to backfire. Um, I'm going to talk about this in a future video, but just um, basically it would be such a George thing to make Eamon trying so hard throughout his life to find the prince that was promised, to tutor them, to push them forwards, to, to end the darkness. And he, and he accidentally did the same with Jon Snow, not knowing who he is, not knowing his future role or his parentage or anything like that. Um, it'd be, that'd be a very George like twist to do that. The lesson of, of his use of prophecy is basically like by not trying to make it happen, Eamon accidentally make it happen that he dies thinking he was a failure that he could never save the world. He may have done it unintentionally. <clears throat> uh, Jay Moray says, do you think John or Sam will have internal thoughts on Eamon after learning RLJ? Definitely John. Um, I believe he he, John does reference Eamon during season eight. Um, when he's, uh, he's talking with Tyrion and he says love is the death of duty that kind of thing so even in the show they had um Aemon in Aemon's influence on John become a plot point in the um end game of the story George is not going to forget that John thinks about Aemon quite a lot in his um and his lessons so I'm guessing that will come through at some point 
Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was talking for a bit there. I ignored the chat. Um, let me see here. I got some questions from here. Uh, does anyone know if Reader Westeros is streaming today? I don't think so. Um, I thought they only did like, well, they released their Winds of Winter um, Stormlands primer last weekend. So I don't know if they're doing it today. Um, uh, Lemmy B says, I wonder if Ned found comfort with John going to the wall knowing he'd be with Aemon, one of the last of his blood relations. Uh, that could be true. Uh, Ned never thinks about it, though. Um, he seems to try and keep it from his mind at all times that John's true identity. It's like he thinks about it's like in his mind, if he thinks about it, he thinks like somebody else will notice it and like pull the information out of his brain or something like that. He re it really just doesn't come up. So if he thought that it would have been on a very subconscious level, but it may have felt um, right to him, essentially, especially with Benjamin being there. Um, John can be with a Stark and a Targaryen at the same time. Uh, let's see here. Lady Rosalie Valaran says, what do you think Aemon made of Lyanna's disappearance? Um, it depends if he's still writing Rhaegar at this time. He definitely would know that Rhaegar would feel that he needed um, three children to be the three heads of the dragon. But it's kind of unclear how plugged in Aemon was at this time. Like, we forget that he's so far at the wall and that court gossip doesn't really make it to him. Like, does he know that Rayello is having trouble having children? Does he know that Elio is having trouble having children and almost died after Aegon's birth? Um, probably only if Rhaegar's telling him. So that may be the um, the cloak that George uses to keep John from, I mean, to keep Aemon from ever really putting together who John is by essentially just denying him the information. You have to figure he's so smart that he would have put it together if he knew the whole story. Um, uh, let's see here um take a few more here any last questions throw them in the chat um just at me bro sorry i'm, I'm rolling i'm scrolling down from quite a uh, ways back i think i got all the questions out of the way um or i addressed them during the uh during the stream yeah ramona zamfir wanted to know uh the role of aemon with grooming rhaegar to believe he was the prince of his promise yeah definitely i think definitely he uh rhaegar reached out first it seems um but then aemon had an active role and convincing him of it um how um, chill rlj ignores the fundamental point George is making with bastards about social system feudalism fairly finally well parentage and how children resemble their parents uh john does resemble his parents so you remember he, was, he resembles liana that's the trick that uh he uses to inform us about rlj where he says that uh aria looks like liana and then John looks like Arya. Oh, no, it's it's a daisy chain. It goes basically, Ned comments that he thinks that Arya looks like Lyanna at the same age. We know that Arya looks a lot like Ned and also does John. So you can use that as the um, as a sneaky way of knowing that John actually does look like his parents, just not Rhaegar. That the Stark blood, that for, that for some reason, uh, George decided that John would look like Lyanna, not Rhaegar, probably to make it his plot easier. But we know it goes both ways. Um, there are parents... Uh, who have children with Targaryens who turn out both ways, uh, where they, they turn out looking like the, um, the non-Valyrian and sometimes they look like the Valyrian. It's not a, uh, it's not a total thing. Um, and I don't think RLJ ignores a fundamental point about bastards, although he does, he does very much like magical bloodlines. Um, he would never write like in uh, star Wars, the idea that Ray's parents were nobody. He, <laughs> He would very much want her to be related to somebody. He does like magical bloodlines. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, Barris Aurelius, what do you think of the theory that Bloodraven manipulated its hard bloodline and recreate the bloodline that led to John? Um, okay. So I I don't think he can. Um, the point of his thing about the the ink is dry in the past that you can't change anything is that 
you cannot use your powers of the weirwoods to go back and make something happen that didn't already happen. You essentially can only go back in time and um and do the actions that your future self did. It's like a it's a big pretzel thing. Like when Bran goes back in time looking through the uh the weirwoods and he yells out to Ned, it's not like when that happened previously Ned was sitting there and heard nothing and then during this during Bran's actions all of a sudden he went and looked up and saw Bran. That always happened. Ned always looked up there to hear something. It's just that Bran didn't realize it was him that did it. So the idea that Bloodraven could um, could use his like mystic powers to go back in time and make things happen that um, that didn't happen initially, like he can't do that. He can do it in the current timeline. I'm sure he had preferences when he was a hand of the king and active in Westerosi politics about which of the Targaryens ended up on the throne. I wouldn't be surprised if he had some role in Arian's death or with um, he definitely killed Aenys Blackfire. He may have had a role in getting Magor and uh, Baella essentially removed from the line of succession. But um, I, I don't think I don't think it tracks with the way the time travel essentially works in George's world that Bloodraven could like be manipulating things throughout time. He can only make the plot line happen that already happened, basically, if that makes any sense. Um, you can you can touch the past, but you can't change it like you, you have to assume if Bloodraven had the ability to change things in the past, he would have made it so Damien Blackfire never, um, never rebelled. He would have helped his previous self stop Damon. That would have been his first thing. Or he would have made it so that um, um, so that he and CRC Star ended up um, becoming one in the past. Oh, Corton had political power. Um, yeah, like I said, he probably had preferences and he probably there were certain people he wanted on the throne, but I don't think he did it with the idea of like a magical bloodline. I think um, he probably did it looking towards who would be a good king and who would be able to stop the Blackfires because those were his primary concerns when he was still like a being in the world <laughs> before he became like a magical tree thing. Uh, yes, that's right, Rosalie, which is why Hodor can't be on Hodor. Right. Bran could fix that. He would, but he can't. Odor always had his mind destroyed by Bran. And when Bran goes back to do it, it will be just completing the actions that were already done. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't really think that was like Blood Raven's big plan. His big plan seems to be stabilizing the realm from uh, the Blackfire rebellions and using his magical powers to do so. Like that's what you see in the mystery night. Um, he's using his ability to glamour to essentially stop a Blackfire rebellion. I don't think that had really anything to do with like a magical bloodline or trying to create them or anything like that. Um, but that's just my opinion. It seems to have, he seems to have changed interests as he got older that he started, he stopped looking at the small picture and started looking at the large picture, essentially the others and the children of the forest and all that stuff. Um, I, I think there's even a line where it's like blood Raven's eye is fixed on Essos and, and bitter steel. I think as long as bitter steel still active and blood Raven's still like, a temporal part of the world that seems to have been what he was what he was using his magical powers for basically um and if it was like at some point to help Arian to an early grave i can imagine that he definitely killed anis um but i would be surprised very surprised if blood raven's story was him like picking off the members of his family to try and make a particular magical bloodline come about that is john snow that's something future blood raven may have tried to do but realized he couldn't um I think that's about it. Any last questions? And then uh, we'll be getting out of here. Yeah, sorry. We went over a little bit, about a half hour over. I mean, there's so much to talk about. I love Eamon. I love talking about him. Um, all these other kind of things. Uh, 
Uh, question from Eric Ferg. He says, if we ever see the eggs attempted miracle at Summerhall, we better understand the mechanics of Danny's legitimate store with the stone eggs. Yes, absolutely. I think egg was trying to mimic Danny's pyre thing. And, um, and it was uh, a vision of the future. So what if we ever see Summerhall on the page through the tales of Duncan egg, then I think that would shed quite a lot, a lot of light on what the idea was behind, uh, Danny's eggs. Uh, who do I think killed Baylor? Baylor Breakspear? Baker. He hit him in the back of the head with a mace. Uh, he didn't mean to. He didn't mean to kill him, but he definitely swung it. So, um, you mean Baylor the Blessed? Didn't he starve himself to death? I don't think anybody killed him. Um, <laughs> Rhaegal choked to death on a lamprey pie seems sus. Yeah, um, maybe he killed Rhaegal, but I doubt that if he had a hand in that, it probably wasn't like, again, I don't think it was magical reasons. It's that Rhaegal was like, I believe he's the Targaryen that used to run around like naked through the halls, like, and essentially acted like a, a crazy person. So it may have been like a practical matter. Like I can't let that kid become king. And let's see if we got any others. Uh, Jay Moray says Blood Raven during Egg's life may have gotten his niece to hook up with Egg. Very possible. Um, he is half uh, Blackwood after all. I'm sure he would have been pleased to see that Egg um, hooked up with um, with Melissa. I think that's her name, right? Hang on a second. So uh, I talked about her recently. He was married to. Oh no, it was Betha. Betha Blackwood. Um, I am sure Blood Raven was very happy to see that happen and may have urged Egg to um, Egg and Dunk to go that way if he had a chance to. Oh, we got uh, 200 likes. Oh, um, OK. How am I going to do this? Uh, I'm going to give away a free shirt. Um, OK, uh, so we hit 200 likes. So as I said, we'll be I'll be giving away uh, a free shirt. So uh, this is what we'll do um, to enter. This will be this will be a fast contest. We won't do the um, the other thing I did for the for the uh, calendar and stuff like that. Leave a comment and um, let's see here. Yeah, leave a comment on this video and tell me. Let's see here. Tell me which aim and speech you like best. Um, I'll pick a random comment from that and um, I'll and then we'll I'll try and get in contact with you and that's how I'll give it away. Okay, so just leave a comment on the bottom of the video. There's no other. I, I don't know how to do it with a with a live chat thing unless I like have a comment. I press probably the only way I can do it anyway. Um, I think that's it for today. Um, actually, let me show you the designs on Threadless. One second. There we go. So you have the old spooky tree. You have the current logo, the hat and the ass waffle. So um, yeah, leave a comment saying which of Eamon's uh, speeches in the Song of Ice and Fire is your favorite and you'll be entered to win. Thank you guys for slamming that like button. Thanks everyone that showed up for the whole uh, two and a half hours today. Um, I hope I helped you guys understand Eamon a little more and why he's such a worthwhile character to examine, why it's worth going back and reading just for him, even though he's not a POV, his role in the larger story, his role in Summerhall and Rhaegar and, the, and uh, Robert's Rebellion and the current story, how so much of this magical dragon thing seems to be revolving around this this uh innocuous old man on the wall i think that's really great writing from george and i think it rewards you by investigating it more so i i suggest you to too so yeah leave a comment on the video for the free shirt um i will see you guys uh next weekend i don't think i have to work so yeah 2 p.m eastern time next saturday i mean this coming saturday um be doing another quarantine stream and if you're a patron at the five dollar and up level after the stream i'm going to be turning on the uh, Sandy King's analysis for all five.